Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Has been replaced by a dull sense of confusion. When I finally fell asleep past 645 here in Dutchland, I dreamt that the calves had actually lost. I woke up with that familiar feeling of failure Only to be reminded by my phone That indeed the calves are champions This is gonna take some time to process I reckon be a great defender And LeBron can win the title in Cleveland Woo! On his own terms Having evidence that contradicts previously Have beliefs forces me to change my opinion But I will get there Maybe media won't That's okay They already talking about LeBron leaving Cleveland But Symbol crash. You know, I'm just, I'm not that into like, 
jumping into the off season. I, I'm yeah, really trying yeah. to just savor what has happened. You're you're reveling in the afterglow. Yeah, I mean, I, I had dinner with a, a good old friend tonight, and we just talked for hour, like over an hour, about what that series meant. It was just so much fun to do that. I and mean, I'm in D, I'm in uh, the D.C. area right now. Oh, okay. So I met up with an old college friend, and man, it was awesome trying to sample our beers and just going on and on about just everything about that series, just diving into it. That, that, actually, I actually had a really I have a, I have kind of a cool take that I think would be good for this podcast that okay. I brought up to him. So that'll be my one thing. Have you gone back and watched any more of the series? Oh, yeah. And okay. as a matter of fact, as soon as I got on the plane, um, I, uh, I played the last like six minutes on the plane because the guy next to me saw my Cavs shirt and was like, Cavs, man, that was crazy, man. He's <laughs> like, man, LeBron, that block, what was up? What was going on, man? And I was like, yeah, let's watch it again. And he's like, you got it? And I had it on my <laughs> laptop, so we just started watching it. No, it was uh, – so, yeah, tell me, tell me what your theory is. Oh, are we recording? We are recording because uh, Carson's right. going to join us in a bit. But, uh, All right. So I've, I've heard this pop up a couple different places, so I assume people are talking about it. Um, the, the, the correct uh, reading of this, the back half of this series is, or at least the more fun version, is that the Warriors, Clay Thompson uh, especially, Maurice Spates, they, they poked the bear, with resp- or they poked the lion, with respect to how much they disrespected LeBron James, and subsequently, and, and not just those guys, the entire organization. I mean, they were right. The, the baby bottle memes were out, and all the fans with their signs that were feeling pretty sheepish at the end of Game Five. Right. So, yeah. So um, here, subsequently, LeBron, uh, to quote Christopher Walken in that epic. Game six hype video tore the bleep out of everything. And, uh, you know, and the Cavs went on to win the series. So I've seen, I've heard this on some, on some talk shows. And now my friend today said, I was talking to my coworker and he was saying, well, okay, what does that say about LeBron if he needs this as motivation in order to win? In other words, if they hadn't been uh, childish and disrespectful um, and churlish that the Cavs wouldn't have won. Is that what you're saying? And, and his response was, I don't really know. I mean, I told him it wasn't really like that. They just sort of, you know, they, they got LeBron to a place you don't want to get him. You don't want to make him mad. Kind of thing. So I was listening to uh, Max and Marcellus and Marcellus was answering that question as well. And his point was sort and, of... And like, Max and Marcellus is an ESPN uh, talk yeah, show. Featuring, out of, uh, Los uh, Max, Angeles. Yeah, featuring Max Kellerman and Marcellus Wiley, formerly the NFL. So Right. And and Tom is a big fan. I am now, actually. My buddy Dwayne, you know, from that we went to the parade with, got me hooked on them. Good uh, yeah, they, they've got some really good podcasts over the last two weeks. They're, they're, Marcellus is, is a big-time LeBron fan, and it was fun listening to him dominate everyone. But uh, so he, he answered it by saying, uh, okay, LeBron's a guy that 
likes structure. He likes order. He likes getting teammates involved. He likes making the extra pass. Um, he likes people being happy. He likes being liked. And the Warriors took him to like a dark place. They took him back to the streets of Akron, you know, when he was a young child and uh, his world was chaotic and, uh, and, and he embraced it. You know, he went straight like Undertaker on him and uh, he didn't know that he could go to that place, but he was kind of forced there and then he just destroyed everything. So that, that is one way to look at it. So here, here's how I'm going to look at it. And it's more from a, I sort of agree with that reading of what happened. Plus, I think it's more fun. But then there's sort of a basketball side to this. And uh, when I posted, I posted something a week or two ago that um, talked about, it was called All Bets Were Off. And it was basically like, hey, look, nothing's really made sense. And one of the um, topics in that post was after games one and game two, Kevin Pelton of ESPN, his advice was maybe it's best to just let LeBron go one-on-one, face up and go one-on-one. Maybe it's best to let Kyrie just face up and go one-on-one. And that's um, basically goes against everything that not only we as Cavs fans have wanted, but just NBA fans in general have been demanding of LeBron for a decade now is that he not revert to the ISO and that he get in the post or uh, work in a motion offense or whatever. And it turns out if you watch games, the final four games of the series, uh, the final, I guess, uh, yeah, there was a lot more isolation. And especially in games five and six, LeBron and Kyrie individually were just phenomenal. And uh, this is kind of like a Cole's wet dream here that like ISO ball ruled the day. But see, here's the interesting thing. The Warriors defense switches everything on the perimeter, but they never double and they never trap on the perimeter. And they bait you into trying to back down your opponent uh, or take your opponent off the dribble and their post defenders and and also Andre Iguodala are just outstanding at swiping at the ball, contesting at the rim, and the rest of their team, that kind of amorphous um, amoeba of a defense, is just on a string, and they recover so quickly that even if you back down your opponent, get down to the low block, and now they have to double to prevent you from, you know, a, a high percentage shot, the perimeter does really does not stay open very long. And that's what the Cavs tried doing in games one and game two. They tried a lot of Kevin Love backdowns. They tried LeBron backdowns. They tried to get like a motion offense going and it just failed miserably. And starting, I think in game three, game three, they just played with a lot more energy and toughness. But certainly if you look at the like game five would be the, the pinnacle example, I think um, it was really a lot of, simple pick and roll on the perimeter to get a favorable matchup and then uh, just one-on-one ball. And so I think LeBron, I think I agree with Marcellus and that LeBron is not a killer, you know, like, like Michael or Kobe, where it's like, I'm just going to dominate you right in front of me. He's always thinking more about the team concept. And I think down three, one, he probably thought like 
everyone else, okay, the odds that we're going to come back and win this series are very slim. Um, but I'm tired of being disrespected. I'm just going to start. I just want to dunk on you guys. I just want to plow over you guys. I just, you know, he went to a place where it was more about the individual competitiveness that he had and, and kind of like a rage that how are you going to disrespect me? This is like the sixth straight time into the finals. I'm one of the greatest players of all time. And you're treating me like some, um, some schmuck. And I think the, what happened was the, that LeBron went into more of an ISO mode. His jumper showed up. So that helped a lot. Uh, and the Warriors never adjusted. They never doubled him. They never trapped him. They only started doubling Kyrie to get the ball out of his hands on the perimeter in game six after he had already just torched them in game five. And they really never did it for LeBron. They they stuck to the scouting report, which was sag off LeBron and uh, and let him do what he wants to out on the perimeter. And I think they 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 poked the line as it were. And he elevated his game. And really, they baited him into trying to dominate them in isolation. And much like Kevin Pelton brought up, that was the only thing that was really working against the specific way the Warriors defend. And then that coincided with Bogut getting hurt. And they lost that that shot uh, rim protection on the back line. And I just feel like all these things kind of coalesced at once and had the Warriors not poked the lion. Um, you know, LeBron might not have decided to go in like kind of screw you. I'm driving mode and we could, you know, who knows what would have happened. Anyway, that's my take. What do you think? Um, I think that's a great take and I'm going to respond to it in, uh, in one second. Oh, we're going to pause this podcast and get Carson in here. But uh, no, I, I think so much of that rings true, but also, the other thing that's just staggering about this series is how one thing go- there's so much of like a butterfly effect of every single little thing that happened in the series because the entirety of the series there's a four point difference between the two teams so one little thing changes and the outcome of the series changes so it, it, that is a really good way to look at it and there, there's a few other ones that I'm gonna get into here in just a second. Welcome back to Cavs Podcast. Uh, so, Tom, you were just talking about the narrative of the finals, and in some ways I agree with that narrative, but I think you also have to look at the way the Warriors started playing and the old adage that you can't win with a jump-shooting team kind of finally started to pile up for the Warriors, and they started taking just looking for the three exclusively and even in game seven there was even in on that fantastic love defense uh curry just refused to blow right by him and get to the hole and set something up i mean he was just hunting for that three rather than just you know running the intelligent offense and i felt so much of what happened in the series was the warriors lost their composure uh they lost their composure in game five you know, maybe they lost Draymond, they lost the eye of the tiger a little bit, and they really lost it at the end of game four when, you know, Draymond let himself get baited into t- picking up a very stupid uh, technical foul, uh, you know, knocking LeBron in, in the jimmies. And, uh, and they really weren't the same after that. Uh, you know, they played well at times, but they 
missed a lot of shots that were just automatic earlier in the season. Um, and the Cavs, I don't want to say they got lucky because I don't really believe in that. I believe you make your own luck. But like I said, there's so many little things like Andrew Bogut going out. I don't believe if Andrew Bogut goes out that the Warriors lose that series. I mean, those 18 minutes that Vergeau and uh, Festus Azili played in Game 7, the majority of those would have probably gone to Andrew Bogut. And we both know how just horrifically awful, or all three of us know how awful Andy and Festus Azili were in that game. And they were a big part of the Cavs staying in it and exploiting, you know, the defensive mistakes of of the Warriors. So, you know, th- th- there's so many factors in play and every single one of them, you know, plays a part. And, and also Kyrie just going absolutely incendiary. And and like you said, the Warriors didn't start trapping him till game five. I'm sorry, game six. Game six. Yeah, and then you know Tristan Thompson was a great passer as a role man in that game, and and the Cavs kind of learned how to make that role pass. So, I mean, do you want to respond to that? Do you want to let uh, Carson say something? Uh, yeah, Carson, what do you think of our takes? Yeah, sure. No, I mean. There's like a million different reasons for this and that in the series shifting, you know, on its tail. But I think like there's the war of attrition aspect to it. And I do agree that Bogut, you know, ending up going out really hurt just their uh, big man rotations. Um, And I mean, you saw whenever he was on the floor, he was pretty dang good, especially in what was a game uh, five or four where he had like five blocks in the first quarter. Yeah, I think Um, game game two. Oh, well, was it? Yeah, even yeah, earlier in the series. Yeah, game two, it was amazing. You know. Yeah, I mean, he was awesome for them. And, uh, you know, he was able to protect the rim for them. And, you know, all that kind of stuff aside, like you were touching before on just kind of the, uh, you know, the Warriors sort of faltering. And I think that the, uh, you know, the psychological aspect was one of the biggest things in the whole series. Um and I think LeBron was the catalyst for all of that. And, I mean, you look at the uh, step over Draymond Green as the turning point in the series. And, uh, you know, people debate whether or not LeBron intentionally, you know, goaded Draymond into uh, <laughs> doing his little fling into the nuts or whatever. Um, you know, you can argue whether or not LeBron intended that. But, you know, after the game, he's saying he wasn't aware of how many flagrant fouls or points or whatever Draymond Green had which, you know, is obvious BS because LeBron sees, hears, and knows all, as evidenced by his Instagram post. Um, his Instagram post to the haters. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I really think that the psychological aspect played into it a whole lot because if you look at just kind of the me- the way the momentum sw- swung in the series, um, you know, Golden State winning the first two games and then getting blown out in game three at home by Cleveland, you know, like, it's easy to spin a narrative after the fact, but I think that, you know, having it happen that way to have two resounding wins at home and then they come into game three and lose by so much, I think a lot of that is, you know, the Warriors, uh, 73 wins, like, we got this. Um, Overcome. Taking the foot, yeah, taking the foot off the gas a little bit. Yeah, um, and they were terrible through the, I don't think they won a game three in the entire playoffs. They even yeah, right. lost, to, lost to Houston. Uh, and kind of what I thought a little bit is LeBron t- 
talked about, or you talked about that Christopher Walken video, Tom. And one of the things that LeBron, we've always kind of talked about, LeBron, especially with his jumper, especially with, you know, weird political drama on the team, he can get in his own head a little bit. And I felt like the Warriors just baiting him and baiting him and goading him let him get out of his own head and just focus on, like you said, tearing tearing their bleeps up. <laughs> you know, uh, and I well, really he, thought he that was a, a big mistake. <clears throat> Sorry, go ahead. Tom. Yeah, and LeBron, there's a bunch of notable historical examples of a fan or a player or something getting into it with LeBron and him sort of just going Nova after the fact. I mean, I remember all the way back when Chris Bosch's girlfriend <laughs> in was Toronto. talking trash. Yeah. Yeah. In Toronto. And then LeBron just completely, I mean, the Cavs were down and LeBron took over the game. And at the end of the game, I mean, you could see him and, and read his lips and hear him say, this is your fault. This is your fault. <laughs> yeah. So, uh yeah, so I, I think uh, – Yeah, and, and kind of the difference between him and Jordan is Jordan would just make up a reason to do that. Yeah, he would manufacture it. <laughs> yeah, he would manufacture it. Yeah, and, yeah, and that's Ron, what he kind of did – if when you, you poke the bear, it's a, he's a little more dangerous. I think if you just leave him to his own devices, he can get in his own head. But, yeah, definitely yeah. when he's got something to focus on, it's – Yeah, yeah. He's deadly. Well, yeah, I mean, LeBron's just wired differently than those guys like Jordan or Kobe, like just the killer, you know. Um, he's, uh, you know, he's got that passive, passive aggressive way about him. He's, uh, you know, more of a team guy. He doesn't really, uh, he, he's not getting in fights and punching his teammates, you know, during practices like Jordan did. He's not, <laughs> he's not a, he's not driving guys out of the locker room the way, you know, Kobe kind of did with a few people over his career. He's more kind of a people of, person. Kobe he's someone who drove some people away. <laughs> yeah. Kind of, kind of a few people. That's like Mario Andretti was kind of a race car driver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You may have heard of a few people Kobe drove out of town. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, LeBron's wired differently and, if you're one of the people, which I am, who think that LeBron is a quote-unquote basketball genius, I mean, any genius or extremely intellectual person is just going to have a tendency to think and really brood on things and, and more in the moment, maybe overthink things. And, um, you know, it's not to say he's not summoning his best games at will when he's not being provoked, but when you have that anger or, you know, whatever passion that he's playing off of, you know, after being prodded, um, you know, oh, it takes away that extra millisecond of thinking about things. things. That's an yeah, old, yeah. That's Bull Durham is if you're thinking about it too much, you're you're not effective, you know, 100%. instead of just, you know, reacting and, and you know, going based on instinct, uh, you know, if, if whether it's the other team, uh, you know, goading you with signs or whether you need to be pitching with women's garters on, it's like, you know, as in Paul Durham, uh, you know, whatever, whatever gets you through the night, you know, whatever, whatever it takes to get into that kind of mental space. So, well, so, so take it, taking us back to the basketball side of it. Um, right. <laughs> I think, I think, and it wasn't just all the Cavs. I think you can actually blame the Warriors for the majority of this. They, 
turned the series into a one-on-one isolation type series because uh, the Cavs eventually figured out that they needed to just switch everything on the perimeter and not try to fight through all the picks and um, and be a step slow, which was leading to all sorts of defensive well, breakdowns. In, they in took a way, the, uh, they they switched where they needed to switch, you know, on Steph and and Clay, and then didn't. Well, right, switch that's that's on most the, of the. It did a good job of mixing it up. Yeah, didn't switch on the insignificant mismatches. You know, they're not switching on Sean Livingston because they're not worried about him pulling up from three. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Right, but my, to my larger point, if you watch right. the way they tried to defend in games one and game two, uh, after that they they had they they kind of let go of trying to make sure they were never in a bad individual matchup, and you saw more TT defending Curry on the perimeter. You saw more, you know, like J.R. Smith defending, um, you know, different guys, Iguodala, Draymond Green at times. Um, they didn't. They didn't. They didn't really lose sleep over what the matchup was, um, and I think I think the Warriors baited the Cavs into trying to beat them with isolation ball, um, and it backfired a little bit. And and then, like you were saying, Nate, they were just going three point hunting. The Warriors did not have an appropriate fear of the Cavs. I mean, you, you know that based on everything they said. Everything you know they're that, still saying. Still saying, yeah, you you, yeah. you know that based on the fact that they had three different parties planned for their families to, to do this after serious celebration. You know it from the fact that they didn't really make adjustments once LeBron's jumper started falling. They just thought, well, um, we're going to play the odds. You know, they, they sort of went through the motions a little bit after those first two wins. And you could even see it in the early goings of a lot of those games. Steph and Clay took a lot of really bad shots. Like I yeah. need to look up what their first quarter shooting splits were, but I feel like they were horrific, and they were basically they were, just they were going for knockout punches. Yeah, they were yeah, going I mean, for knockout punches. That's exactly right. They weren't getting you know quality looks as much as just flailing and firing up shots when their shoulders weren't even squared, hoping that if they saw a couple go in, they they'd kind of get that NBA Jam fire mode where it's almost like not even fair. And to the Cavs' credit, they, they did not give them good enough looks to get going like that. By the way, I wanted to bring up – you guys brought up Andrew Bogut. You thought you know, he was so critical. But um, for the series, the Warriors were negative four points per uh, 48 minutes when Bogut was on the floor. So, I mean, yeah, he had, a, he had one good game, but the Whoa. Warriors were playing him just to try to scrape by and break even before going to the death lineup. Well, right. I, think which the... I, I don't, I don't disagree with that at all. The problem is, is Azili and Barishow were so yeah. worse. You know? Yeah. Like... I think with the war, Oh, keep going. No, go ahead. Yeah. Just thing with the warriors, like they are the basketball machine and their biggest strength is being able to just keep on you know, just having the interchangeable parts where, you know, one guy comes out of the game and they're able to, you know, bring guys off the bench and, you know, they're able to fill in and not only hold but extend leads. But I think that when you take just one 
one of those parts out of their system, I think the whole machine starts to kind of get mucked up. And you saw that not just not just with Bogut, but also with Iguodala later in the series when his back yeah. was starting to act up. Like I think with that team, because Iguodala, you know, yeah, and that's by himself, we talked about on this pod yet either. I mean, the Iguodala injury was enormous because he was playing fantastically until that injury. All right, well, I want right. to hear him finish this thought. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Oh no, yeah, it's just to say that you know Iguodala and Bogut, you know, those are those are the fourth, fifth, maybe fifth, sixth, whatever you want to say, guys. Like they're not the big three guys that they that you're worrying about. But when those two go down, I think that really disrupts what the rest of the team is doing. And I mean Iguodala even more so than Bogut because he's such a Swiss Army knife on defense and. You know, he can run in transition. He can kind of do a little bit of everything. Bogut's obviously a little more utility, so to speak, uh, more on the defensive end. He's a good passing big man. He's able to – I mean, I do think on offense uh, they had to have missed his ability to pass from the high post down low. But, and um, enormous illegal screens. Yeah, yeah right. Him, him and Draymond Green couldn't do that in yeah. game five. But, uh, no um, – yeah, just uh, in general, I think, uh, yeah, the point is that taking out just uh, a couple of not even the biggest pieces on Golden State, but some of the more major, you know, mid-major cogs in the machine, I think that really disrupts what they're, what they're doing. And I don't think I don't think necessarily the Cavs or even a lot of teams are the same way. I think the Warriors are built uniquely in that sense to where um, – you know, like I, like I keep saying, if one piece isn't quite operating at the same level as the others, it can kind of throw everything off kilter for them. Yeah, and the other part of that is, you know, I'm going to make Tom's head explode here. Uh, I was to the, the Simmons podcast from, from last Friday. And one of He's the, things the worst. He, I know. I, I love how much you hate him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it was a podcast between Bill Simmons and Nancy Pelosi. And uh, that's what? what no, I was just mean Joe has. No, I'm just trolling you there, Tom. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought you were gonna say like you met Nancy Lieberman, but you always no. get names wrong. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I was just trolling you with the the biggest liberal I could think of. Anyway. Oh, I mean that's that doesn't bother me really, but okay. <laughs> um. So one of the things he talked about was how horrific Steve Kerr's rotations were in the second half of Game Seven, and I'll completely agree with him. I was terrified. Of um, names are escaping you. The little Brazilian point guard, Leandro <laughs> Barbosa. Barbosa was killing the Cavs in the series. Yeah, he yeah. barely played uh, so the second Livingston. half that game. Yeah, right. No, no, no. No, check this out. Check this out. To bring this full circle, the death lineup. Right, the lineup that outscored a point opponents by like fifty points per game, or basically by a point a minute throughout the entire season, was negative. 3.4 points per game against the Cavs. Uh, that lineup, but not the Duff lineup, because instead of Iguodala, you have Bogut, was way worse even than that. Obviously, the sample size is kind of small because it's one series. If you want to look at individual players, plus minus, Barbosa on the series was the leader at 6.3 points per Per game, um, second was Draymond Green at three point eight. Uh, third was um, 
Maurice Spates, actually. Wow. Uh, but yeah, so basically, Barbosa killed the Cavs. Um, Sean, Lin- oh sorry, Sean Livingston is who I met. He was uh, 1.9. He killed the Cavs early in the series, not as much the last couple games. No, but yeah, if you look yeah, at the they, as the season series went on, it fell off a cliff. Yeah, when it stopped, it is Michael Jordan impression from game two. Well, to you know, between those first two games and the two regular season games, Livingston was like 21 of 25 from the field, which absurd. is which is absurd. And then I think the last four games of the series, um, or the last uh, five games of the series, he was something, you know, below forty percent. You know, he he kind of turned back into a pumpkin. So, uh, but it's just so interesting to me that the death lineup that no one could crack all season long, and I don't know what to make of it. I mean, I I I, I can't as much as I'm a Cavs fan, and I want to, I don't want to admit it. I do feel like. Um, there must have been something maybe physically that was triggering Curry to play such a dumb game mentally because you know you watched him in the series and he didn't look slow or hobbled. And the sport view data bears that out, that he was running as fast as he's ever run. Um, I think well, he and, was and just... You called it from, you know, Marcellus Wiley. So he's trying to dunk between... Oh, yeah. Dead balls, you know, and you yeah. don't do that when you're LeBron, yeah, exactly. But he was obviously like mentally compromised. I mean, one, the guy just completely choked. Uh, he made a lot of really stupid decisions. I mean, everyone remembers the behind the back pass out of bounds that has been memefied with the picture of the Larry O'Brien trophy getting tossed out of bounds. Which, <laughs> by the way, I haven't seen that. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah, it is fantastic. But he had uh, at least two other terrible passes in that second half when every possession was valuable. And if you listen to the low post, he did two. He did one with Windhurst, but then he did one with Ethan Sherwood Strauss. He low, who's usually kind of an even keeled guy, just ranted for like minutes about how early in the game um Curry stayed in the backcourt arguing a foul call while the Cavs yeah. went the other way and scored. I mean he was going off up there. He's like it is game seven, right? Yeah, there is no, there is no next game, right? You can't just let your guy, uh, and 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 so, I mean, hey, look, LeBron, when it looked bad and it looked like the Cavs were going to lose, scored six unanswered. He hit three free throws, which were huge. No one's talking about that in the fourth quarter, oh, yeah. which in my opinion was the turning point. Then he stepped back and drained a stanky leg three. On the next possession, and the Cavs went from being unable to score and being down five to in a flash being up one. And you look, I mean, that that's just, I don't think LeBron is phased by the moment anymore. And you look at Steph, he just, that dude completely, I mean, this was like worse than Jordan's speed at the Masters choke. I mean, he just completely melted down in this series. And uh, man, it is fun. Doing that, dude. Such a cocky, cocky team. I, I, I just played on the other side. Higher team. I mean, oh, they did. I mean, I listen. Mean, why to why wasn't Barbosa playing late? <laughs> yeah. I know, but just like you said, even after the series ended, they were like almost in a state of disbelief. They weren't blaming themselves, like oh this or that. They were just like, we thought we were gonna win with this like zombie glazed look. It's like, don't you get it? <laughs> you lost. 
You lost for a reason. You need to yeah. take like ownership for this loss. You need to. Yeah, yeah. I hope they never did. I think. <laughs> well, yeah, I think they, like the very next day, it's like, uh, they're really excited because now they're going to get Kevin Durant. It's like, dude, that's not how this works. <laughs> you get your nose rubbed in it for a few months, right? Yeah. It's not all is better now. And, and, it's done and I loved your tweet the other day. It's like uh, talking. We were all on the blog talking about, yeah, give the give the Warriors Durant. Make them soft. Yeah. Like, it's a great time to be a Cavs fan. <laughs> it is, yeah. I love that. I love everyone talking themselves into how the Warriors would be worse with Durant. But, hey, that, you know what? At this point, I mean, we're the champs, man. You, you can say whatever you want. I mean, all those years arguing with Kobe fans when, you know, I, I had empirical evidence on my side, and it was just like, count the rings, you know, with, with a bunch of Z's. And that was the end of the discussion. There was nowhere else you could go. That, that was where the discussion started and ended. And it wasn't fair. And you know what? Now it's my turn. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, yeah, and, 70 and kind of, means nothing. It means nothing. That's why Bill Russell is the greatest player of all time. And had the Cavs been healthy last year, they'd be 2-0 and now against the Warriors. Who, oh my gosh, all the great ones would just be over the top in their jump shooting team comments and Curry isn't that great comments. And I'm just upset now that the Cavs weren't healthy enough to beat the Warriors last year, because then we would have thoroughly exposed these frauds. I'm on a roll. I'll just keep going. You you can't change (laughs) history. Now, the other thing, you know, we talked about a little bit, we've kind of looking at the final three games as a continuum, but each game was just absolutely unique too, which is what made it such a compelling series. I mean, that game five, where you had the dual Ridiculous. 41 points by LeBron and Kyrie, and LeBron with the 41 points, and did he have 16 or 18 rebounds? Just one of the all-time great performances you will ever see in a finals. And then the next game, 41, hey, he follows it up. 41 points, yeah. and how many assists did he have? You know, it's yeah, just yeah, like his game. His game six was even better, I think. Yeah, his game yeah five. I mean, Kyrie's game six wasn't as good as his game five, but yeah, Kyrie's game five was crazy good. Kyrie's game five, the Cavs don't win a championship without that game that he had, just hitting every insane shot that you could absolutely hit. You know, and no. I mean, can we take a moment to? Ref- Sorry. Um, I was just going to say, can we take a moment to reflect on how amazing it is that two players on the same team scored 40 in an NBA Finals game on the road? I mean, yeah. uh, when I was waiting for you guys actually to get on the podcast, I was watching on YouTube the 2016 NBA Finals full mini movie. It's about a half hour long, goes through each of the you know each of the games, highlights and slow-mo dramatic and music and all that. And, man, I mean, it was sending, getting, giving me chills and just uh, – you know, getting putting me right back in the moment with that, and that game five was just—I mean, that, I mean, obviously that's the turning point of the series, but it's just, yeah. I, I mean, we've never seen anything like that. It, it's hard to argue who had a better game. I mean, LeBron just absolute one for the ages, forty-one points, four of eight from three, sixteen rebounds, seven assists, three blocks, three steals, and only two turnovers. And then, yeah, six, that's crazy. Game six, he had 11 assists, 41 points, and one turnover. One turnover. <laughs> that is yeah. – And the thing is with him, it's like we put the highlight on Kyrie in something like game five, and even though LeBron has these ridiculous stats, it's just yeah. 
we're so in, inundated by it at this point. I mean, it's a day at the off. I mean, obviously, yeah. 41 points and all that. And, you know, well, it's not just a normal game, but, I mean. And not only that, the quality of a lot of those assists was off the charts. I mean, he was making something with, you know, little pocket passes to Tristan with really tight windows oh and all gosh, these pieces are moving. Lobs, those little just like oh, yeah. seven-foot lobs yeah. that Tristan was throwing down with one hand. Yep. I mean, he he totally that game six. Um, you know, the Warriors kind of mounted a comeback, and LeBron just he was like a puppet master in that game. He just had mm-hmm. everyone, all all nine other guys were attached to his fingers, and he was just. I mean, he was putting on a performance. It was it was outstanding. Well, look, and okay, um, let's look at this box score for the last five games. LeBron thirty three points. 2.4 steals, 2.8 blocks, 8.8 assists, and 11.8 rebounds. That is <laughs> in 51% or 52% from the field, 39% from three. I mean, the the only hole in his game was his, his 69% free throw percentage. But it's like, oh, my God, that is <laughs> – like, have you ever seen a line like that in a five-game series – for you just a lose to year old player that has played as many minutes as he has, it's just unbelievable. It's it's yeah. unprecedented. I mean, Jordan is the yeah. only one that comes close at that age. I mean, it's just yeah. I mean, I remember. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm just. Uh, yeah, yeah. I remember. Uh, yeah, I remember listening to a uh, Colin Collard. Um, I'm sorry. A year ago, during the summer, beginning of the year, or something, and uh, yeah. Um, and he was comparing just a kind of the, not the careers, but the styles of he was comparing Jordan, Kobe versus LeBron and saying how Jordan and Kobe are like master artists. And it's as if they paint with a paintbrush, you know, it's a fine and detailed stroke, whereas LeBron comes out there with a paintball gun on fully automatic and he splatters it all over the court. And Coward's point was, you know, more or less saying, like, the athleticism, like, is LeBron going to really be anything when the athleticism wanes? But I, that's completely beside the point. It's just there are very few people, athletes, period, that you can watch who leave their fingerprints all over the game in the ways that LeBron does, just defense, offense, and everything in between. Yeah, and and Simmons again on Friday brought up LeBron's never missed a playoff game, ever. No. I, I mean, every single play playoff game that he's been eligible for, he's suited up. I mean, the guy is just made of of iron. He's he just hasn't, mithril. Mithril. he hasn't missed many many games. Period. <laughs> no, that no, he didn't that he didn't want to play. Knock on yeah. wood, his his regular season health his health has been very good. I mean, he turns yeah, it all the time, and it's just it you know. He, he turns his ankle, he lands on his elbow and hurts his wrist and just gets back up and keeps doing it. I mean, some of it is, I think, his training and his flexibility. Oh, yeah, it's not is so of it. It's a large off part the of charts. It. Yeah. But I do also think he is freakishly, like, unbreakable. I mean, because I have seen him turn his ankle hard and you think, like, oh, that's, that's it. That's the high ankle sprain. <laughs> and it's like, nope, he's fine. Just ices it, walks it off. It's Superman. Uh, he he really is. He he's um you know, when I was uh when I was younger watching LeBron, um, and there was all there was that whole remember he was in that commercial where he agrees to play for the Browns 
And I remember a bunch of tight ends in the NFL chimed in and basically said it was laughable to think LeBron could be an NFL player. I think that might be the most patently ridiculous thing I have ever heard. LeBron would have been the, I think, like the best NFL player of his generation. Oh, yeah. I I I think he would have been the greatest tight end, the greatest receiver, and probably the greatest quarterback the NFL's ever seen. I mean, you you, you watch those alley-oops that he goes up and gets from J.R. Smith that aren't even in the vicinity of the hoop. And he has the athleticism to reach it, but also the dexterity to get it and the power to throw it down. I mean, who, who, I mean, the combination of quickness, size, speed, hand eye coordination, understanding pieces in space. I, I just, I, he's oh, yeah. the most remarkable athlete I, I think we've ever seen. And period. now he has a signature play on his career. I mean, that block is just. That, that's an exclamation point on this series, this season, and really, it, it's, it might be the career. Play. It might be yeah, the no, this, play of his career. It is, because it was, the, it was the culmination of this series, which was the defining series of his career. Mm-hmm. Hands down. Hands down. It's just Man, so Wendy awesome. was even yeah. saying on his podcast, oh, uh, sorry, Wendy was saying on his podcast just how LeBron could have retired, you know, a week ago, right after this series, and his legacy, his legacy has been written. I mean, he can add to it, obviously, but he's done what he set out to do. I mean, he's done everything. There's only two players with what is it? Um, three Finals MVPs and four regular season MVPs: LeBron and Michael Jordan. That's it. There you go. And it's just like at this point, he has checked off everything on his list. You're right; he can add to it. Um, I think if he retired today, history would still remember Michael Jordan as the greatest of all time. If LeBron plays for another five to you know eight years and becomes like the all-time leading scorer and like top five in assists all time or top three in assists all time, top playoff you know every statistic, that'll be a serious case to be made that he is actually the greatest basketball player of all time. And I think he, I think he'll, I think that's what he's gunning for next. I think he's going to start gunning for um, all those all-time statistical records. Yeah, I mean, hold on, I'm I'm pulling up a thing, but LeBron's already played more minutes in his career than uh, Larry Bird, Clyde Drexler, Steve Nash, Jerry West, Magic, Isaiah Thomas, and he is still clearly as can be seen by that block in his prime oh yeah it's just it's otherworldly uh plus when you add playoff minutes it's so he's at a total of nba regular season and forty six thousand, i think yeah forty six thousand. and yeah uh i think kareem is at fifty seven thousand. um and you know lebron you know god willing is going to is going to be at the top of many 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 lists of of NBA all-time plays uh yeah. or all-time records. I mean, it's just that that to me is what's amazing. He's passed those yeah. guys and those guys played how many years just kind of on broken down bodies and he is still as good of an <laughs> athlete as there in is in the NBA. And his ability to summon that when he needs to you know, we argued with a certain commenter throughout the year of, you know, LeBron's coasting at times in the regular season. 
And, mm -hmm. you know, given the results that we've seen in the playoffs, it is hard to argue with LeBron's, you know, LeBron can take plays off if he wants to because he knows, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, <laughs> he can do whatever he wants. Are the two greatest oh, yeah. I've ever seen at picking their spots of just yeah. you know, yeah. and, and they, quarters and then destroying a team. Uh, Rosillo and Canel were talking about that this week, how at this point there's no more pressure on LeBron. I mean, if he never wins another championship, he's done everything. So at this point, um, what they were saying, Canel was arguing all the, all the reasons he thinks LeBron will stay in Cleveland for the foreseeable future because he's saying if he goes anywhere else, signs as a free agent anywhere else, there's going to be this expectation that he's going to like lead that team to the promised land. And so there's going to be criticism when he goes into chill mode. He's like, at this point in Cleveland, with, with high usage players like Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love and, and a nice nucleus, LeBron is going to be the chilliest LeBron you have ever <laughs> the, seen. The chilliest. In, I love it. In the, in the East, because I don't even know if the Cavs are going to go for the one seed. I mean, I think on talent alone, they will get it. But they don't even care. They can get the four seed. LeBron will flip the switch. A Kyrie, I mean, I've never seen a guy flip the switch defensively as much as Kyrie yeah. this postseason. I mean, I, at this point, almost like I cast the blog for losses. We should just be like, they didn't really care. And for wins, <laughs> trying try to glean some information about how they played. But I almost just feel like being like, check back with us in April because at this point, I mean, a lot of people are out there arguing that, that LeBron did not care at all about winning those games in Toronto because he was more concerned with like Kevin Love getting involved. I don't know how he had to face some adversity. Right. Right. I don't know how true <laughs> that is or not, but that, you know, I, I believe it if, 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 you know, it came yeah, from the yeah. horse's mouth. Yeah. <laughs> And let's talk, I mean, that was, to me, the other biggest storyline of the playoffs is Kyrie Irving became a competent defender. And that is what had to have, had to, had to, have to, had to, had to, had to, had to happen for the Cavs to win that playoff series, and it did. You know, mm -hmm. he, he was not a black hole uh, on defense, and he was... A black hole on defense would be good. He wasn't a traffic cone or a yeah, fly, okay, a fly, a, fly paper defense. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. And not just defense, but even just picking his spots more intelligently on offense. I mean, uh, game uh, four, that was the one they lost in uh, when the fourth quarter got away from them, right? And uh, it was a lot of... You know, a lot of missed shots by Kyrie, and you know, I, I think it was LeBron who uh, I don't know if it was in game or after the game, like more or less said something to him, you know, along the lines of like, you know, like we we can't keep getting that from you, um, it, you know, just uh, just the dribbling of the ball, and this you know the same thing we've been harping on all year at Cavs the blog just about you know the dribbling ball for too long and waiting till late in the shot clock and not even passing it and shooting it like yeah and they are, did drain that shot clock but yeah. yeah yeah I mean but there's moments and there's there's points where you pick your pick your times to do that and um you know I, I guess a lot of that's up to discretion of the players doing it in the real time of the game but just in general for Kyrie to uh 
to realize when his shot isn't necessarily falling and to be able to defer. And I think he kind of did that in game six when uh, both himself and the rest of the team allowed LeBron to take over the game late in that one. Yeah. Yeah, And also that was the game where the Warriors started trapping him. And I don't recall a single time where that turned ugly for the Cavs. I felt like he did a good job recognizing it and um, finding the safety valve and then moving after it, not just sitting there like Eeyore, like with his head down, like we saw the last <laughs> yeah. four years of his oh, career. Oh, yeah, no, they did the, he did the deal where he continued with the motion and ran out to the corner the way Curry does and got a wide-open three-point shot. I'm like, that's the play that Curry, that's Curry's bread and butter, and, Del, and Kyrie Irving figured it out. It's like, right. that, that's all you got to do. You've got to keep yourself yeah. a threat on offense, and they're not going to continue with you, especially when you got LeBron and Kevin Love and J.R. Smith on your team. And the Cavs' ability to face space the floor and plus have to keep a body on Tristan Thompson is just so enormous uh, you know, for the way their offense works. And if Kyrie yeah. keeps moving, he's going to get an open shot. Yeah, and I think a lot of this year, you know, just on the blog and in the commentary and all that kind of stuff, we uh, not so much, you know, nothing to say about, you know, Kyrie's intelligence as a human being. But, you know, there were a lot of times where we questioned his basketball IQ, quote unquote. And um, I think he took enormous leaps and bounds in the finals specifically. And, you know, keeping in mind that he's only 24 years old and, yeah, and I point guard generally a position. We, yeah. You know, we were hard on him, too. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you and, expect and, and a lot of it was probably unfair or. Yeah, yeah. It, but if it you're going to be mean, paid like that, being a it comes fan to too. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, exactly. No, no, we're on the same page. Yeah, and so I touched on something a minute ago that it's also an enormous part of the series. Uh, the rebounding, the Cavs rebounded almost thirty percent of their misses this series, which you know that as much as anything drove their offense. And the Cavs just kind of became masters of doing that. You know, you know, led by Tristan Thompson, but also Kevin Love in Game Seven, and yeah. you know LeBron at times, and. You know, everybody was just collectively on the boards. Kyrie Irving, that huge rebound of his own miss in uh, in the oh yeah, I mean that was yeah. an enormous play. Yeah, where he uh, he jumped up and alley oop layup off his own miss. <laughs> yeah, I mean which game yeah, was that? Was, that was Game Seven. The rec center alley oop, I call oh, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean. And God, and just talk about some of those finishes that Kyrie had in Game Seven. I mean, oh, those two is. finishes in transition over Draymond were just filthy. And you remember one of those finishes was after Curry needlessly like lost the ball trying to throw a one-handed pass to Verizal rolling, and Kyrie <laughs> was just standing there like, "Wow, the ball is just right in front of me." And then he <laughs> ran down and uh, thank and you, went, Steph. You know, here's the thing about Kyrie. So, um. Yes, the Cavs would not have won the finals without Kyrie. Absolutely. And Kyrie's defensive effort and effectiveness was much higher than I think we've ever seen in his career. He he didn't, like, transform into, you know, the, this perfect, you know, specimen. He still was a little ball hoggy, especially in games one and game two. And if you, I, I didn't really notice this until, and you know, I was telling you how I was rewatching the last five minutes on the plane. 
But he hits that that shot, right, where he says he channeled his inner Mamba, which is the greatest. The greatest shot in the history of the Cavs is what Tom's talking about there. And we had a little bit of technical difficulty, so we're going to skip ahead maybe a minute or two. Tom's talking about how the Cavs play with Delhi on the floor throughout the season versus how they play with Kyrie throughout the season and how the effectiveness of that changed in the last four games of the playoffs. So thanks for your patience during the technical difficulties. Um, we saw throughout the season that you know, Matthew Dellavedova, the, the team was overall better offensively and defensively um, with him kind of managing the game. You know, he had an assist-to-turnover ratio of three. He played his role. He didn't try to do too much. And the dichotomy between Delhi and Kyrie this season was just striking. I mean, Delhi's a guy that his clock awareness has got to be tops in the league. He he must have led the league this year in transition fouls that weren't in the um, penalty, and, and also weren't clear path fouls. Mm-hmm. He has an uncanny understanding that look, transition opportunities have a much higher points per possession than half court. Um, you know, check side out possessions. And he would always use up his fouls, just grabbing people as soon as it got to be at this, um, you know, advantageous for the offense. And, uh, you know, so the, but the good news is when you've got LeBron, who, as we said before, is sort of like a puppet master and can control the pace, just like he controlled the pace in last year's finals, can control how the game is going like this year's finals. It is actually nice to have a gunner, a, a guy that's going to channel his inner Mamba, because as much as I couldn't stand the positive coverage, this is how my Kobe hatred superseded my patriotism in 2008. And as much as I couldn't stand him hijacking the offense time and time again, Team USA did get tight and LeBron tightened up and all those guys started to choke a little bit in the final game against Spain. And it was one Kobe Bean Bryant that had the, I guess I'll call it the stones, maybe just, you know, at this point, you know, the, the, recklessness. yeah, the recklessness to just fire away. And, and he did hit, I think at least two shots in the final minute to give team USA the gold. And, you know, if, if, if Kyrie's going to model his game after Kobe, we're going to deal with a lot of headaches. Um, As Bill um, Raftery would say, onions! Yeah, <laughs> but we're going to deal with a lot of uh, headaches through the trenches but and yeah. through the, uh, you know, through the hashes. But and, and Kyrie got is still not yet fully formed. I mean, can you imagine him in three no. or four years when he's 27 or 28, when he is really is I mean, in his absolute prime? He's just... I, I just hope he keeps growing uh, in terms of his basketball intelligence because he's a very intelligent person. You can understand see, that hey, when hey, you listen to him talk, when you, you know, just kind of. Here's what I'm getting at. Yeah. All season long, I've been um, trying to lead the charge that LeBron needs to be a role man. He needs to get down in the post. And he needs to play off off the ball and Kyrie's got to learn to become a playmaker or he's got to get shipped out for someone like Chris Paul. And after watching the finals, I'm thinking, you know what, regardless of what I think should happen, LeBron is never going to play that way. If he wasn't going to do it, you know, before now, he is certainly not going to do it now that he has basically a license to play however he'd like to play for the rest of his career. 
He is not going to do anything he doesn't want to do. And I know he doesn't want to play off the ball. So I, I, don't I think, think that's true, Tom. I think it's totally true. And so See, here's what, what I think is the Sorry, formula that they used to beat the Warriors is a formula that they can use going forward, especially because LeBron can play point forward and, you know, Kyrie in in isolation on the wings is just is just deadly and you're not going to double him uh when LeBron's on the court. So I think even if it's a little bit dueling banjos at times, it was the best best damn banjos in the NBA. And I think mm-hmm. it, I think I think uh I think I like our chances for next season is where I want to go with that. Um, yeah Mike that's a mic drop moment. I just stunned you guys in the side. <laughs> So, Tom, in response to that, the reason I, I disagree with you on that a little bit is I don't think this team has one way it can beat you. I think this mm-hmm. team has multiple ways it can beat you, and we saw it early in the playoffs when LeBron was a role man, uh, you know, and late in the regular season when LeBron was just devastating in the in the deadly LeBron pick and roll, and kind of as the playoffs went on, a, Delhi's effectiveness waned uh, for one reason because his confidence in his jumper just kind of fell off a roof. And you talked about a guy's not being too big for the moment or the moment not being too big for guys. I thought the moments in the finals got a little big for Delhi. I thought he, he got inside his own head a little bit. And he, and yeah, he lost, maybe. He lost his confidence I, a little. Um, I, I don't know. It's weird to see that happen after last year's finals, though. I, I agree. I feel like the he, other thing I feel is, like I, he caught some bad breaks. I don't know that he, he did catch some bad under, breaks. Undermined himself. I mean, he was out there with Shumpert, who was hijacking possessions. Oh yeah, um, but he it also there was, you can't deny his his jumper. Delhi's jumper no, 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 I agree. disappeared on him. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. And they, they were and they were playing him to be a scorer. And I felt like um, LeBron, especially, kind of gave up on trying to roll hard. And right, it kind of with you on that too. rendered it kind of rendered Delhi ineffective. Um, yeah, so, we but about that I mean, go back and watch. Go back and games. watch that. Go back and watch the first three rounds of the playoffs, and Delhi's uh, plus minus was second or third to Channing Frye and LeBron. Yeah, and and they were like at the top of the whole NBA in terms of um, lineups. In fact, I think when those three guys and Richard Jefferson were on the floor together, Cavs were just basically blowing teams off the court. So, you know, I, I'm not going to look at 15 minutes or 20 minutes or however much he played in the finals and be like, oh, man, you know, no, that's no, the real doubt. Especially no, not after an entire... that either. What I'm saying is, is when he's having a bad stretch, the Cavs have multiple ways to beat you. You know, oh, the yeah, Cavs yeah. can beat you with a pick and roll. They can beat you in isolation. Uh, and having multiple ways to beat other teams makes it so hard to key on any one thing for the Cavs. And, you know, you and I complained a lot after the first two games that LeBron was just refusing to roll. And I, I don't know why that was, but they found something else that worked and they stuck with it. So maybe, you know, maybe that's all they need to do. Yeah, yeah I mean, I liked what uh, LeBron said about the team uh, earlier in the playoffs before the finals. Um you know, when people are making a huge deal about the threes and then they're able to, what was it, game one against Toronto when they uh, got all those looks on the inside and just easy layups and dunks because uh, the Raptors feared the threes so much and LeBron yeah. 
equated the team to a balanced offense in football. And I think that's a really good way to put it. I mean, uh, you know, in football, you run the ball and you make the other team respect the run. You'd end up doing play action. Then you're able to hit the home run long pass. And it's kind of the same principle, you know, uh, the Cavs can get inside if they want. They got Kyrie, LeBron, and even Kevin Love, you know, who against certain teams at least can, uh, you know, find his way down low and just get baskets close to the rim, like, when needed. Um, but if the other team's going to key in on that, they can kill you from three, too, and uh, kind of pick your poison with them. Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely true. And I remember LeBron saying that. And he also said the same thing, like, hey, don't try to limit the Warriors and just say they're a jump shooting team. They're a very balanced team and they're more. I think he even said they're more balanced than we are. And we need to we need to be balanced. And he was right. And look at I mean, look how prophetic that was when you look (laughs) at how the series ended in game seven. It turned into a slugfest where neither team had any legs. And you're right, Carson. It was a war of attrition and the Cavs won out. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I feel like we've dissected uh, the series in Game 7. Uh, I could go on forever. Yeah, yeah, we, I could I do could this forever, all summer long, Nate. I, and we will do this all summer long. But I want to talk about <laughs> how great last week was Celebration Week in Cleveland. Uh, we had that parade on Wednesday. I know you went down, right, Carson? Yeah, I was there. Up, I guess. Yeah, and Tom and I went. And what a phenomenal just moment for the city you know you had the game seven win sunday night and people just euphoria 1.3 million people in downtown cleveland and hardly any you guys know that was the largest sports parade in the history of america right i know isn't that amazing it's incredible it is i mean cleveland fans are insane we were starved we were, and it it was an awesome moment, and uh, and that the I I felt that everybody's attitude and friendliness and just congeniality and pride in the city was off the charts. You know, we were just talking to and high fiving random people. Uh, everybody was unbelievably considerate and nice, and people were high fiving cops and cheering the cops <laughs> at the fire department. And and in a city like Cleveland. That's had as many problems as it have. That's a, that's an enormous deal. So I was oh yeah just super proud to be yeah. from the region. Um, you know I don't live in Cleveland, but I, I root for Cleveland as we all do. Uh, you know the the rising tide lifts all boats in this area. So yeah, it, it was phenomenal. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I mean, what was your experience like, Carson? So first uh, of all, you were down Game Seven Sunday night, right? Yeah, I was at the outdoor watch party right outside the queue. Yeah, tell us. How was that? So what was kind of Uh, the last five minutes like of of Game 7? The last five minutes, that was when they were missing everything, huh? When when nobody (laughs) scored for four minutes, you know? Yeah. And I'm not like, I'm not a guy, like, it's not about the aesthetic pleasure for me as far as, like, scoring baskets or a certain style of basketball, like, just the tension of that whole run there was just so good. Um, You know, just the sense that, oh, my God, like, every time you miss, the other, you just think, like, the dread in your stomach, like, oh, they're they're just going to go down and make a three now, like, of course. I'm sure the Warriors fans were feeling that, too, and it just, you know, it turned into 
wow, whoever's going to make the next basket is definitely going to win this game. It was just the feeling of it, like when neither team can hit a shot. And, I mean, you could just see their dead legs. But, um, yeah, the crowd downtown, I mean, uh, you know, I'm sure you guys have read and heard all the stories and all of it a million times, but just being down there, like none of it really does it justice. Um, and like I said in my uh, my little blurb just about my championship experience, um, like uh, I'm not married. I don't have kids or anything. And I recognize that, you know, while the last Sunday night may not be the happiest personal moment in my life, like I contend I'm never going to see anything more amazing in my life with just that much happiness, you know, just crammed into one spot and one moment. Um, just when, uh, I mean, first when LeBron made the block, obviously, you know, everyone's losing their mind at that, but the game's far from over at that point. And then when Kyrie hits the threes, when really, when people started really losing it and, uh, it's just no one really knows what to do other than just jump up and down. Um, and uh, so he hits that, and, you know, the game's not over yet. And then uh, the LeBron almost unleashing the Kraken, you know, and then yeah. falling down and hurting his wrist. It's just everybody, it, you know, it's yeah, I mean, everybody the classic Cleveland. In their throat. Yeah, it's just the classic Cleveland here we go again kind of deal. Just this is what this is just what happens i mean it was it's you know it's been like the phrase has been said so many times in the last week but it's just it's more than just the sport aspect of it it's just the defeatist attitude of everyone in that moment um just you know like of course like oh lebron's going to get hurt what he's going to miss both his free throws and then steph curry's going to come down the other end drain a three and it's going to overtime we're going to lose this one and you know even going back to halftime when they were down what nine was it um eight i think yeah or seven eight, maybe at yeah point. eight seven nine a number um <laughs> just everyone <laughs> had seven well, not, seven okay um, like, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I personally, and I know a lot of fans that I've talked to, convinced themselves, not convinced, but just accepted that defeat was a very real possibility. Um, you know, there's just being downtown in general for that game and just, I'm sure you guys have seen some of the pictures, people hanging out of the parking garages just to watch yeah. this game, like, a game, it, it transcends just a game. It was an event. Like, people, I mean, people are smart. People know what's going on, and they get what that moment in history would mean if the Cavs were to win. And, you like, you saw those signs. People had those signs, like, we're going to make history today. Um, and it's just, uh, you know, the moment is just so big. And yet at the same time, classic Clevelanders, you know, they don't want to really, you don't want to give too much of yourself into it because we've seen this movie, movie before. Like we've been through that experience and, and we've and like, this, if it had gone the other way, might've been as heartbreaking as anything ever, you know? Yeah. Well, I guess what, what I was trying to say at halftime is I don't think there was necessarily a sense of dread, even if there wasn't at the same time, a sense of, we got this. I think, like I said, we've seen this movie before, and, you know, 
the more heartbreaking the loss, like the more appropriate it is for Cleveland almost. And to lose in game seven would be appropriate almost. And after coming all the way know, just as yeah, and just as a sports fan in general, like what more could you ask for coming back from three one and forcing a game seven winner take all, you know, championship round. Um you know, just you can't ask much more from the sports gods. Uh, but no, yeah. I mean, it's to me like this is one of the two greatest series in pro sports. I mean, I think the Red Sox coming back from being down three zero to the Yankees and yeah. this, I think, are, are that. But that wasn't the World Series. That was still right. Uh, right. Yes. I, I I'll agree with you there. I'm just saying, you know, the the probably the two most improbable comebacks in sports playoff history, you know, uh, in terms oh, yeah. of, of a series of games. I mean, you, of course you've got the, the Buffalo comeback, um, that happened, uh, with Frank Reich over Houston and you, you know, you got the music city miracle, but you know, those are single games. And like you said, kind of that it wasn't the greatest moment of my life, but that condensed few seconds after I realized the Cavs had won, was probably like just one of the more euphoric just moments I've ever had of just, you know, this is it. This, it finally happened. Uh, and, and I'm not oh, in yeah. the same boat you are of, of growing up in this area, but I've also, no team I've ever loved has ever won anything. And it feels like at times, you know, when I start to love a team, that's when their ability to win goes down the tubes. And, and you know, coming down from 3-1, it was just, it was phenomenal in that. Yeah, and I mean just the whole thing about it is it just it's not just a Cleveland championship. It's not just the Cavs or LeBron championship. It transcends that and it's just it's really universal and what I've been talking with people a lot about uh this last week is that I mean the it just checks all the boxes down the list in terms of what a great American story it is. You know, you got the underdog, you know, coming back from impossible odds, like right out of a Rocky movie. Um, you just had the stakes of what was happening in that season. Um, you have uh, the redemption story of LeBron James coming home, you know, back to Cleveland. And um, the whole American ideal of home is where the heart is. Yeah, uh, just you know, America being able versus, to versus the West Coast, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, just the whole like you really couldn't write a script any better with just LeBron going to Miami of all cities, and Miami is just kind of the antithesis of you know Rust Belt Midwestern town, and for him to come back and prove that you know the message is kind of you can succeed at home and where you are from. And I think that is what LeBron emphasized in his letter when he announced that he was coming home, you know, mentioning that he's seen too much talent leave away from the region and go away to never come back. And even um, just reading the stories and accounts of people online and just, you know, the op-ed pieces on cleveland.com or what have you, all these writers and a lot of people are writing from, say, Detroit or the North Pacific Northwest or all over the country, but everyone still bleeds that Cleveland true and blue because they're either from here or have family or from here. Um, 
and uh, just the unification of it all. And um, like I had said that this sports story, other than the miracle on ice, I can't think of a better sports story in the history of the country. I mean, maybe Jackie Robinson breaking the race barrier, but that wasn't so much a moment, you know, it was more of, you know, it was a kind of, it wasn't, didn't boil down to one game the way this did. And for the series to live up to the billing in that game. Yeah. 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 And for the game seven to live up to the billing and you jump 20 plus lead changes and over 10 ties, um, just for all of the events that had to happen and just for 52 years, you know, the Cleveland sports curse, just the odds of what had to happen for all that to be set into place for LeBron to be born in Akron, to be drafted by the Cavs, to leave and come back and to lose last year in the fashion that we did. And then to have to face the 73 win more or less greatest team of all time in the finals and come back from three, one just, I I just don't I don't think enough ink has been spilled over how monumental of a sports moment it is. And even just like everyone has said, it transcends sports. It just kind of it just hits to the core of what it is to be an American. And, you know, maybe not American, but just to be anyone. Just how can you not get behind that story? You know, just the home is where the heart is and all that. It's a very human story. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, you know, sitting there in that parade and and you know, watching on TV the moments after the uh the game ended and I was just so unbelievably thrilled for the city of, of Cleveland and, you know, the Midwest and I really feel like and I felt for a long time that this is an unbelievable place to live. And I felt like so much of the 1.3 million people coming to downtown Cleveland was as much about sports as it was just the unbelievable pride and the un- community and community that that exists in in Northeast Ohio and you know I feel like this is like one of the best kept secrets in the country <laughs> of how yeah, yeah. phenomenal this area is and, you know, it's a fantastic place to raise a family. You've got great universities. You've got fantastic culture. And I felt like if, if we can come together to celebrate this, if, if we can energize 1.3 million people, there's nothing, there's, I felt like, you know, for a moment, and, and maybe this feeling's waning a little bit, but I, I just feel like there's nothing we can't do. I mean, I just feel like anything is possible. Like, there's no, no problem it's, that can't be solved. I mean, it, it's just it's, it's really, so right. It's really just been a transcendence of sports and into what is great about being an American and and being an Ohioan and being a Northeast Ohioan is 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 about. So it, it's really been an unbelievable unbelievable week. So yeah, uh, and we had a lot more we wanted to talk about this week, but I think I think this would be a great time to close it up. Uh, because I, I don't think we could end on a better note. So, <laughs> as always... Happy vibes all around. As always, go Cavs. Go Cavs. Go Cavs. Thank you for listening to Cavs the Blogs Podcast. 
Check back soon for some more fun with your favorite blogger. There's a fire. Mike Rowe here with a few thoughts on my favorite sweatshirt, a classic zip-up hoodie that used to be navy blue but has since faded to what the fashionistas call a distressed indigo. It's 13 years old, soft as a flannel bathrobe, and after a few hundred dirty jobs, demonstrably and undeniably indestructible. This is the kind of sweatshirt girlfriends like to permanently borrow, but I've held on to this one because I got it from American Giant. American Giant makes all their stuff right here in the USA so they can control every link in their own supply chain. That matters because when you buy American Giant, you not only get great quality, you create jobs for people in factory towns all over the country. No pressure, but if you give a damn about the business of making things in America, you got to support the companies who are doing it right. Go to American-Giant.com slash Mike to get 20% off your first order. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.